Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. If you know me, you know how obsessed I am with live performance. To me, nothing replaces being in a theater and the lights going down and the orchestra starts to play and that first moment of magic. And I know the way I feel about theater, some people feel about sports or opera or dance or comedy or food. And what if there was a place that you could go and find out which live events are going on near you that night, and then for a discount price, you can get off your couch, put down that clicker, and experience the magic that is live performance. Well, there is a place, goldstar.com. You just go to that website, you type in your city, and every amazing live event will be listed at discount prices. Theater, dance, comedy, film, food, concerts, sports. No more staying home. You are going to go out and build memories and experiences that expand your mind and heart through live performance with goldstar.com. Goldstar is in 26 cities around the country with over 8 million members already signed up to find out what event is going on near you. So go to goldstar.com. Get out of your house and build memories that are magic for you and your family. Expand your mind, expand your hearts. Go see live performance by using goldstar.com. Tell them Alana sent you. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord. And others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template... With Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Okay. 
little known fact about my guest today. She's a Tony-nominated actress, but she is also the muse for so many extraordinary composers and lyricists. And most recently, she has come out with a, a collection of songs by Michel Legrand called Le Grand Affair, which um, is really one of the most beautiful albums I've heard. So first of all, get Le Grand Affair uh, and just fall in love deeply with this French music sung by this very American uh, icon in the musical theater named Melissa Errico. And I'm so thrilled to have her on the podcast to talk about um, her debut uh, as a 12-year-old actor, up until today, we cover a lot. So I don't know, get in your car, go for a long ride, and come on a road trip with me and the extraordinary Melissa Erico. everyone. My guest today is the prolific actress and vocalist, Melissa Errico. Melissa has had an extraordinary career on stage and on screen and in concerts, and she is here today. I will list some of her Broadway credits of this Tony-nominated actress, which include White Christmas, Dracula the Musical, Amour, High Society, My Fair Lady, Anna Karenina. It is no secret that she was in the first national tour of Les Mis as a very young lady. On TV, she has appeared most recently recently on Billions, but she was also on Jim Gaffigan, The Nick, and The Good Wife, among many others. She has made at least eight albums that I can think of, including Sondheim, Sublime, and most recently, like so recently, hot off the presses, I just held it in my hand moments ago, and it is a gorgeous two-CD package uh, called Le Grand Affair, which really is a love letter to Michael Legrand, who passed away recently. Michel Legrand. Michel Legrand. Michel, Legrand. Michel, Michel yes, yes. the teaneck in me is yes. coming out. <laughs> Michel Legrand, uh, who passed away recently and was a mentor and a collaborator and dear friend of Melissa's. She's married to tennis pro Patrick McEnroe. They have three magnificent daughters, and I am so thrilled to just talk about all the things that we can get to. We're Long Islanders, we, so we, I to learn Michelle myself. Michelle, you know? yeah. um, but I know that. That's just me having a, a brain freeze for a moment. No, it's, you know, Michelle is somebody who, you know, it is kind of French and a little fancy and so on. And I'm an Italian American from, from uh, Long Island. And my dad uh, was, uh, uh, you know, came, grew up kind of simple. My mom was also Italian American. And my dad played the piano as a prodigy and was a classical pianist. He just became obsessed. It was one of these random things where a kid heard the piano and was four and he slept under the piano because his older wow. sister was given lessons and he was obsessed. Anyway, he went on to be a great classical pianist and he got a scholarship at Yale. And he was drafted to Vietnam War. Mm. He uh, decided to go to medical school. He felt the world needed, uh, you know, less artists and more practical people. I think art was in my family and in the background I come from, an immigrant Italian first generation, you know, parents and so on. I think they just didn't feel they had the luxury to be artists. And so blah, blah, blah. My concert um, pianist father uh, became a doctor and his mode of escape and his mode of expressing himself after work and around, you know, the edges of the intense life that he led as an orthopedic surgeon, which meant emergency room calls and so on. He would play the piano at home and classical piano was his uh, go-to. Chopin, on and off, he was an intense guy, possibly a little on the angry side, you know, just in certain ways, just like that passionate, intense man type thing. 
But Michel Legrand, when he would play that music, it was the music of the 60s. My parents were separated during Vietnam, and my mother had a newborn baby. So they were married. Had was it was that your sibling? Okay, I had my brother Michael. Okay, and they were your dad was drafted. My dad was drafted. He was a medic. Um, He wasn't a full doctor yet, but he was able to be a medic. So, um, and they were separated for two years, and he didn't see my brother. And the Michelle Legrand song, I Will Wait For You, was the big song of Vietnam in the United States. Even though written by uh, a French person, Mm -hmm. the the song was translated into I Will Wait For You. And it was a real song of that time. And then he went on to make so many film scores, Oscar-winning film um, songs like The Summer Knows, Windmills of Your Mind, what are you doing the rest of your life? All these alluring, alluring songs. So my parents, who had already fallen in love with his music through their emotional life and their emotional Their history, connection to it, yeah. Their connection to the most difficult separation that any family could imagine. Um, Michelle Legrand's music became this kind of world of uh, exotic escape for them, allure and romance. And my dad would play it, and my mom would come out of the kitchen and be in a mood, and I watched all this happen. So... Just in this little, this house in Manhasset, you know, it's so like, who would, wild. so weird. Yeah. We, my father brought this exotic man into our house, right. you know, and this music of allure and seduction. And I saw her vibe and I, you know, I was like, whoa, I could see her just, she relaxed, Your mom's really. transformation. My mom's transformation. Right. I know you and I share that our yeah. moms have influenced us so much. I know from listening to you that seeing her swoon really you know taught me that there was some keyhole here to Mm. another world you know I could look through it of course I didn't understand it I'd say to my dad well what's that movie you I can't tell you you know he would say (laughs) or you'll see someday or you know um or just you know don't just (laughs) don't worry about it don't worry about it you know this kind of thing but I knew there was some uh like I said, it, it was a keyhole to another t- life that maybe I would understand later. So, so. I just want to ask you. So, okay. So how there was so that's much to unpack there. That's how he were. came into yeah, your yeah, life. Into our Italian, you know, little house. Um, your father. You said both both your parents are first generation Americans. Actually, they are. No, their their parents are first generation. So okay, so I, yeah. they were they yeah. were. Uh, and so were you... Their parents were adults and didn't speak English very well. Were they near you? Were you around them? Oh, yeah. Okay, so you're you're like... Nana is a big influence. My mother's mother was my best friend in the world. And they she came over as an, um, a young adult with her sister, Rose, and she was a lyric soprano. And they had a tough and an interesting wild life, which was that their mother in Italy and father... Or the father was a kind of wild, um, uh, he took advantage a lot of my great-grandmother. She had some money, and he took all her money, and he started a top hat business with um, canes, and uh, he sold birthmarks and uh, fake mustaches and top hats, and it was like a haberdasher. And he used to sell fanciness, really, in the south of Italy. And um, he used a lot of her money to in, in create this crazy business. It was like a glorified barber, really, right? In the you know, and this is in the late 1800s and you know early 1900s is crazy. Yes. And then he took the family to Ethiopia to sell top hats. You know, there was, I guess, a European subculture over there, and he started this like top hat business in Africa. And my um, my aunt Rose was born actually in Africa. 
And uh, so eventually they ran out of money and she got very, very sick, like some kind of yellow fever. And they had to come back to, um, uh, to Italy. And that's when he decided to take even more of her money and all five kids and pack them on a ship to go to New York, where she also was very sick on that ship. And he died when they arrived. He had some kind of a heart attack and he had run them out of money. So they were super poor in the Bronx. And this woman had the older girls my grandmother and Rose and the younger kids. Mm -hmm. And Rose was gorgeous. And my grandmother, also gorgeous, had a beautiful singing voice. And she used to really impress the haberdasher father with her beautiful voice. So she was a little bit of, they were both kind of um, appealing to him because they were artistic. Right. And so they took off on Mott Street to try to get um, jobs. They left the Bronx and these two gorgeous girls, they pretended they knew how to sew and they <laughs> ran around Mott Street. You want to know a little known fact? I'm going to give you 600 this little known facts. This is the greatest. And they ran around trying to get um, jobs as seamstresses because they were so pretty they got them. And Rose being even more uh, uh, frivolous and a little bit more risk taker used to leave during lunch or skip out and get them a better job. And come and say, come on, Millie, let's go. And they'd get a better job. They didn't know how to sew, but they would cry, you know, and tell the other women, I don't know how to do this. And they would teach them quickly right. how to sew and everything. Not long uh, after all of that, Rose was a hat check girl at Child's Restaurant. Okay. And um, uh, Ziegfeld came in. No, he didn't. And he fell for her. No, he and didn't. And she went on to a huge oh career as a Ziegfeld Follies girl. That's so I have all the costumes at home. I have the feathers. I have the pictures. They're on my some of them are on my website, but mostly this is a little known pile of little this known is facts beyond facts. This is so, just extraordinary history and like how far back showbiz, so showbiz is in your blood. Yes, and there was so much frustration too because she had five husbands, never had kids. Rose or not Rose, Nona, gorgeous Rose. Nona had four kids. My mom being one of them, mm -hmm. and Rose used to say, "Could I have that one?" Because she didn't have any kids. And she had a lot of alcoholic husbands. She had a whole Hollywood life. She eventually went on to be Claudette Colbert's um, stand-in and sort of best friend and understudy and so on. And was always there shadowing her as the movies changed. But she was mostly a Ziegfeld girl for a long, long time. She was in Showboat. And um, Nona had the most gorgeous lyric soprano voice. And she met an Italian man in Brooklyn who was a doctor from Rome and they met in they met in New York City, but then he had to go back. But they got married before he went back for a while. And any and when he was away for a time, she continued to sing and started to get on the radio. And we have some recordings. They're also they're on YouTube. I sang with her once. I sang with a recording of her. Yeah. Because she then, when he came back and saw her rising success, he forbade her to do it mm -hmm. again. And he said, "You're never going to do that again." And so she wasn't allowed to sing. And so I grew up with it openly, understood that Nana had been stopped right. by Babo, and that Rose was also a showgirl, but she had all these abusive and alcoholic men in her life, no children, and the show business had really beat her up. Been hard on her. Been hard on her. So there was a lot of artistry in my history that didn't get realized in a So that's from a, like a vocal, way. that's a, a vocal gift, and then on your dad's side is... Your father. The sort of the glamour, the voice, and right? my father's music, and right. my mom's humor. I mean, my mom, my mom is like, you know, whenever you talk about, is it your mom Helen? Mm -hmm. yeah. 
you know, I always think because there's an attachment, that giddiness between you that I sense. And I, a lot of my mom's dreams, I kind of lived, you know, Yeah. and her, her, her love of fantasy. And so in some ways, my mom's spirit is kind of what a, a lot of what animates me. Like if there's a, you know, the idea of ventriloquism, like yeah. in a way, if she's singing through me. You know, like her losses, her Italian glamorous girls, mm-hmm. all the women who were stopped in our history, all the weird men and these crazy dreams. And, you know, my mom wanted to see me um, not celebrated, but celebrate, you know, and do it. Just get yeah. up there and do it and feel free. And I think she was so glad, you know, that I bust out at 12 years old with a voice. And, yes. So that's what I wanted to talk about, know. because obviously, like, this is a magical story that you've just shared and we've we've scratched it's not confusing we've like scratched the surface because i'm fascinated by family history i just i love it i love it yeah european a lot about escape a lot about sensuality a lot about dreams unfulfilled alluring things that everybody wants to run away now that feeling you know at 12 years old so i mean i'm i'm not you know bearing the lead here you're an incredible singer. Like you have a singular talent and voice and you are world known as just being someone that hundreds of thousands of people like to listen to all the time, right? So that's just fact. We're just, you don't have to say <laughs> thank you. You don't have to, she's blushing, you guys. Know. That just is what it is, right? But but so we, the whole world knows that now. But there was a time where like it got discovered so when did you realize uh, what the world now knows, which is that you can sing beautifully and in a very special way? Um, at 12, I know, like, you had your first gig, as it were. But, like, when did you start singing? Well, I think – thank you for, for all that. I'm not sure if I have – And it might be more than hundreds of thousands. Oh. It may be more. <laughs> I'm terrible yeah, at math. It's more yeah. – no, me too. It's, it's more like – there's no doubt I have a lot of, like, I think of myself as someone who transmits emotion. You know? So when did you and fall in love voice. with singing? Maybe not to well, make you talk about how talented you no, are, no, but I, the I love of it. Apparently, the, I did, I, I moved schools when I was in sixth grade. I moved to a new school, which um, I think, you know, how we get known in our school for something. I think I was kind of known. I was a gymnast mm-hmm. in lower school and the beginnings of middle school, and I always did flips everywhere. I was always upside down. <laughs> the, there was a rule in the house when the phone rang. I was like, no, don't. Like, no one could answer the phone. It had to be me. So you and could I, run in. No, but there was a thing I had to do. I, you see this door frame right here? Yes, There's I do. A, She has a door frame in her room. Yes. I had to do a full split, and I'm talking about, like, put one hand there, put my leg up the wall, be down, full split, and then answer the phone and go, hello? Like, there was a position. I had to answer the phone, which in the door frame, I could prop myself with one hand, just literally oh my God. flip the leg and go, hello, my brother would roll his eyes. Right. We were very close. My older brother is only four years older. My sister was born to, uh, 11 and a half years later. So okay. it was like family A. Yeah. So my brother would particularly remember the Melissa who did always upside down, always doing flips. I did so many flips. I couldn't even see the yard. I couldn't see sticks. I couldn't right. see rocks. You know, I was still upside down. My mother would say, come inside. Right. Know? So anyway, always gymnastics. And um, I know this is related to what I was Who cares? Telling. No, who no, no. Cares? But where, what was I? Well, you what? moved schools. Oh, so moved in schools. school A, you were the gymnast. gymnast. Yes, yes. Because I But then in school the B. I had a chance to reboot. And I right. auditioned for Bye Bye Birdie. And I was always the dancer in the other school doing, you know, the Rockettes and things like that, yes. you know, for the Christmas show. We had a splitting, rock, we had splitting. A, all, well, actually, right. my mother used to say for the Rockettes show in the prior school to kick the 
highest. But see, that's not the concept of the rocket. <laughs> You're supposed to blend. The same. Right? So if you look that's at kind the, of the cool thing about it. It's all in unison. It's yeah, synchronized. My mom, you give me advice right before to kick higher than everyone else. So I have. Wait, what's your mom's name? Angela. Angela. I used to do. I have a. I have had a bio, biographical cabaret, which I've done at the public actually a couple of times about women and silence and, and the, my this family history. But I do show that picture of myself with the kick, and it's true. Those girls are all their leg is mm-hmm. right in the middle and there's Melissa Erico with her kick way too high. That's right. Smiling. She said smile the brightest, kick the highest. It's terrible advice. Anyway. Is it? I don't know, but it wasn't good for the show. <laughs> <laughs> right. It got right. me to experience like, you know, what it's like for everyone in the audience to go, oh, she kicks better than everyone else. Yes. But, but not like the most team player of it all. No, but I was but, a team player. I was right. doing what my mother told me. I am the, right. I'm such a team player. That right. It is a handicap that I'm working on, actually. So, I hear no, you. I actually don't feel, I feel like wanting to please everybody and catch anybody's needs everywhere in a weird way is interesting. Could have been something your I, mom just wanted you to stand out because you did for did, her, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, right. In that way, I think just for that particular yes. performance, you wanted me to have a blast, yes. Um, so when I moved schools, I did a Bye Bye Birdie, and this, this family mythology is that I opened my mouth. I think I was singing um, How Lovely to Be a Woman, and everyone was looking around, all the parents. Like, did you hear this? Right. Who's hearing this? Who's doing that? Who did that? they put does, the record on? What's happening? Yeah, did anybody, is everybody hearing this? My mother said the whole room was looking around, and she was like, wow. I don't remember feeling uniquely, but I, but I really remember her story. I remember mm-hmm. Kim. I remember what Kim felt like. Yeah. And um, I do remember things being easy. I do remember musical theater feeling easy. I remember thinking it could change, you could change the key, you could make it higher. Like it didn't really, like I didn't need a lot of help. Right. I remember feeling it was fun and easy, yeah. which was nice because gymnastics got tricky. I was falling a lot. I had a, I got a tush-tush around that age and I was too voluptuous for, you know, for I was a national. Were coaches giving kind of, you a hard time about that? No, I was just getting taller and falling. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was I was doing these nationals only level four, but I wasn't doing well for the team. Right. You know, and I do the floor exercise really well because I was charm. You know, I could yeah. be charming and like perform yes. on the floor. But the other things were getting f- scarier for me to assess, like my weight going over the vault and throwing myself backwards to the bar to reach. I would be more worried in my head. Right. Because I'm, you know, I wasn't sure how. Um, was there enough room? Yes, or how much weight was going to have to be caught by my shoulders in, you know, in inverted arms. It's right. Like, because I was changing so much. And the beam was harder to navigate. So all this stuff. So I was learning. I was definitely a frustrated little young athlete. And I had a knee problem called Ajgut Schlatter's, which is like a... God bless you. It's a... Schlatter's. <laughs> it's a Osgood... Someone more medical out there might be able to say it properly, but for, I think everyone more medical out a, there will be able to say it properly. It's, it's a bone thing where you're where you're um, you're doing too much while you're growing, right? And I have a little bump on my knee, which caused me so much pain. So when I went to French Woods, yes, camp um, that summer before, no, after after playing Kim McAfee, my mother had the good sense to put me in a in a drama camp, right? I suddenly wasn't finding life so hard as having fun and laughing, having a shapelier body and frizzy hair. I was fine. Frizzy hair. People thought I was funny because I had frizzy hair and a butt, and I played um, Hedy LaRue uh-huh. right away, and uh-huh. I came out in a towel, and I'm saying, I like a jackrabbit, and I was talking like this because I was from Long Island, so it was right. really easy for me but to But it felt so authentic for everybody. Yeah, I 
could like play Judy Holiday, like this yeah. whole thing. Yes, yeah. I had the butt and the voice. I could talk like this for any part. You know, I could anybody. I, all the I had. I got. I got to play, play all the. You know, I, I was in nine um, with um, Jason Robert Brown played uh, Guido, and I was uh, Carla. I was lazing around my bedroom. You know, I was literally fourteen or something. Right. So um, I was able to use you know some of those. Long Islandy funny stuff, you know, and 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 just have a good time, and then started all of a sudden, I guess, maturing into more like a leading lady. I got to play Evita in camp, and I was Charity Barnum, and I heard myself singing um, the colors of my life, and a song like that really brings the colors of your voice for sure, yeah, mind because I love the idea of the colors of my life. Are these colors and to find all the prettiness in, in gold and green and nature, whereas his are bold and red and gold. And I, I, when language and beautiful melody came together, I think I was really, that, I started getting transformed because musical theater took. Well, it excited your brain in all these everything. other ways. Yeah. Yeah, you're so right. So were you one of those kids who then. Because I've had a lot of people here where stage door or French woods or there was a summer camp experience that was yeah, like heard. there. Yeah, yeah. So were you living every year just to get back to summer I'm at French Wood? You know. <laughs> I'm so glad. Well, I've heard. I know. I you know. know who I mean. I mean, Beanie Feldstein. So, so yeah. what are you now like? Obsessed, or is there balance in your life in terms of you have a oh, classical I mean the camp, the, the camp, camp and like if I could created an obsession. Well, you're right. There was a Pippin like quality to it. Like we were in the circus. Like everybody at that camp was, you know, doing mime in the grass and dancing and wearing weird makeup. And I loved it. I loved being lost at the circus. I did. Yeah. And I loved the camp, and I loved being immersed. It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't the only place where the obsession sort of took hold. I then went to um, England when I was 16, and I was an uh, intern uh, through the American Studies Abroad program at the King's Head Pub. And I worked as a barmaid in the day, and I was a, a spotlight operator at night um, and did costumes sort of in between and helped prepare costumes. There was a, uh, I don't know... Um, what all the musicals or there were some musicals and some comedy acts and uh, there was a really really short uh, woman and there was this big Russian show and I had to carry all the all the coats and stuff from the factory to bring them because she couldn't carry them she was too diminutive to carry the coats I was useful because I was strong yeah and a girl from America and uh, so I was sort of a laborer at this pub theater for a whole summer so that became another type of French woods which was mm-hmm. like another world that felt Dickensian practically right there were all these they used to even at the bar they were using um, uh, tuppence and stuff They and pence like they did old they still do it was immersive it was immersive in Islington they still use the old currency so I felt like I'd walked back in time and in fact when you I were went, Oliver you were living yeah, Oliver like, that has it girl you know comes to London in fact my first day when I arrived at the top of the very beginning of that summer the very first day I arrived there was a man with all these coins literally looked like an old uh, Victorian uh, movie and he was upstairs because I came I said I was here I'm here for the internship. And the person downstairs did not know what I was talking about. So I went upstairs where they told me to go to the office. And this guy said, hello. And I was like, I'm here to help for the summer. They were like, they looked at me like, what? And I said, I'm here to help all summer. It's an internship. And I think he asked me if I was going to be paid. But right away he realized he had no idea that he had agreed to having me there. But Dan Crawford had, who was the head of the 
of the, but, but he wasn't the man that I met. Right. So the guy that I interacted with. It was, was in fact, an internship. It was an internship in the that end. nobody remembered that they had signed up for. So I ended up going to the King's Head pub every single day. And within a couple of days, Gareth Neem showed up, who's now the executive producer of Downton Abbey. He was um, a college student, and it was his job to run the theater for the summer. So then I became one of his employees, and we're still friends. So it was crazy. Well, he was just please a young congratulate man. him for us. I, we're very excited. I know. All I good things, him Gareth. All the time. <laughs> well done. He's an amazing person. Wow. And he was just a student. Yeah. And I worked for him in the first uh, uh, tricky. Uh, he was always very uh, sort of not tough or something, but he was he was strict, and he found me. Um, I don't know. American. Odd and American and too talkative <laughs> and happy. And uh, he gave me a job to mix cement and fix the steps. On the first day, this now famous, iconic producer, he was like, well, this place is all a mess. It's just, just a mess. And the steps are all broken. And, you know, could you fix the steps? I said, how do I fix steps? He goes, well, mix some cement and fix it. And I was like, you want me to mix cement? You know, I'm this girl from Manhattan. I'm looking at this man who's like a royal, you know, kind of a upper class British guy. Like, you know, you're like, so I played Kim. I was like, I was Kim and I was Evita. <laughs> oh, you would like me to, you mix, want me to mix cement. cement? I do have some Italian heritage in me that yeah. might, oh, I might have some family place. members who also did cement. No, he put me in my place, oh, not to worry. So I mixed God. cement. I don't think I, I don't think he found it very good, but it was more steppable. I remember it was very hard to keep something square. Ste- you have to put wood, you know, like it's not easy right. to explain to me. Yeah, you have to frame it and kind of put, yeah, you have to put frame things it up to hold it up while it dries. <laughs> Guys, so, guys, if you need your steps done, forget like seeing her on me. Broadway. Yeah. Call Melissa Erica. Ugh. Just incredible. So I did the spotlight and the spotlight was rusty and like hard to move. So he used to get mad at me because I would move it and then it would go across the stage. Right. And then I have to get back to the actor. No, he wanted it very controlled well, yeah, and he had elegant. The door yeah. thing, you know? yeah. So I had to tell him that it wasn't my fault. The thing is He's old. like, Melissa, I need it's you. A, Fix a, that. The spotlight. It's not on the face. You know, you missed it. And then you got you were late. You were late. When you were, I just have to, because I have a 16-year-old daughter, so I'm really mm-hmm. trying to figure out, like, Georgia, you're going to London. <laughs> there may be an internship there. Where did you, like, said, that where was did the you American s- Study Abroad. So, it's a program. Sure. Okay. But it seems like your particular internship was, was slightly. Was different. Are you living in a dorm at night? Like, where yes. do you stay? We, was, we were uh, on Finchley Road, actually, just came to mind. I think that's the London, it's one of the universities. Okay. I remember Finchley Road, because that was my stop. So there were other people on this program that you would get to hang out with when you weren't they were like journalists. They were doing most okay. kids came to London. American kids who were smart were doing, were journalist doing journalism. Stuff. Okay, incredible. And I would go off to the pub theater and be home like the crack of dawn. But listen, you, know? you played Eliza Doolittle. I feel like I feel like you you were of the people. You were sort of like I'm a good girl. Oh yeah, I'm oh, doing I'm your little anything. steps yeah. in that yeah. way. And yeah. so you really knew what it was to be a working class person uh, in London. Then I went to um, the Powerhouse Theater at Vassar mm-hmm. the following summer, 
which was another wonderful as an apprentice. As an apprentice, they have an apprentice program. Yeah, I, I was in. I'm that. touring Vassar tomorrow with wow. my daughter on oh, a college congrats. tour. How crazy! Oh, it's so it's such yeah. a beautiful place. You must go to the Arboretum. Do you I, know about it? I do, because I have done many seasons with New York Stage and Film, yeah, where, me too. Where, and they are housed, mm-hmm. and so I know the Powerhouse Theater. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that. I know the Shakespeare Gardens. I mean, this Leslie is Erdang really the whole people. crew. Yeah. Max Mayer nice. was my boyfriend for no a long way. time. Oh, crazy. Sorry, Dominic, I love you so much, and everyone who listens knows that you are my husband. <laughs> And will forever be my husband. But yes, so oh, so, so cool. I was there. I did there. Spring Awakening. They did a production. Sure. And then they took some of the apprentices and put us in the show. Amazing. And David Strathairn was the father. And I had never seen a naked man before. I didn't see him, but I saw the entire cast. Because, of course, Spring Awakening, everyone's naked right at the beginning. And I was like, oh, my God. I went to rehearsal. And I was like. That's a lot. That's like 14 tushes. Yeah, that's it. a lot. And then they turned around. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't look. Wait, how old were you <clears throat> when you were an apprentice there? That would have been the 17. Okay. Yeah. So before yeah. before college. Before college. These yep. are the two summers before college. Yeah. So you're also finding your way, you know, so much about... My point was that there's like an adventure. Yeah. No, exactly. But yeah. also, you know, mm-hmm. we were pre-internet in terms of how we got our information. So now, like, I want to be an intern in the summer somewhere. And you go Google that and you have 42 internship opportunities. But I feel like you and maybe Angela were able to kind of figure out ways in which to expand your horizons beyond Manhasset and even oh, New York sure. City. Well, you to get you. I've heard you talk about it. Yes, but yeah. I, I, I feel like I'm really proud of us for finding these opportunities on our own yeah. and like just Chorus not... Line was brand new yes, when I was like, growing up. And I was like, unbelievable. I'm going to be Chorus Line. Yeah. I'm going to be some girl from Long Island who figures her way into a Marvin Hamlish life, you know? just And you did. I kind of did. You did 100%. Perfect, and it's, there are bumps and bruises and, you know, I didn't have perfect training, perfect anything. I don't come from a conservatory background, you know, so I don't have that type of operatic. Because or, you went to Yale... I went to Yale. You dummy. You went to Yale. But I went to Yale as a humanities type person. Right. I was already a sort of heady, brainy girl. I wasn't like a classical music uh, uh, technician. Right. I didn't have a technician's mentality. I had a fantasist's mentality and an intellectual's mentality. Well, that has served you well. Yeah. I mean, in a way, because it's just been true to me. Yes. I love stories. I was always, my mother loved stories more than perfect technique or perfect anything. She loved eccentric people who told wonderful stories and people who had been through troubles. And But you have what a lot of people who began in, in the athletic arena, which is a kind of discipline and an understanding of hard work yeah. and repetition. I mean, you had all these other tools in your toolkit that Aside from the That's voice true. and yeah, the yeah, yeah. intuition, like yeah, oh and like and a, a willingness to do it, yeah. I will. I will redo your your pub steps. That's <laughs> that's how devoted you are. And so, you know what? I had a thing for health. Yeah, like because I was an athlete, young and a dancer. Yes, I was never. I never had to navigate through all this in London and here and there. Drugs, right? Booze, you you nothing. wanted your body to be Health in good shape, shape. Yeah. right? Yeah, I wasn't pure about every thought or every behavior, but I definitely was never going to hurt my body. Right, be a drunk, a drinker, wild, bad girl. It just Not for wasn't you. me. I actually had my head in the clouds. Honestly, they I love that. That was your drug, like the yeah. The, exactly. the air above. The ethers. Um, yeah. So, so you can you can sort of 
there's kind of like the the story goes that while you were at Yale, you were cast in to replace Cosette in the first national tour of Les Mis. It's all true. So, you know, we talk a lot about this. There's like while you're in school, you're not supposed to audition and stuff. But you were not you were not a theater major. There weren't like these harsh rules about what you can and can't do. However, most people go to school and put something on hold. I was in a play, actually. Yeah. But, but, um, at, at Yale? At Yale, at okay. freshman year, the very first semester called White Chapel, written by Peter Foley, who's one of the great writers of our generation. You haven't necessarily heard of him yet. He's He runs the uh, backstage and all the uh, real de- decisions of Band's Visit. Right. But he does lots and lots of shows. He's working right now with Elvis Costello on a musical in a more MD capacity, but he's a great composer. Okay. And I was cast in Les Mis and I actually told them I just have to finish the production. Right. And then I could go. I was in Are you looking in backstage and you see that they're casting for yes. Cosette? No, actually. I'm I'm freshman year starts at Yale. I enrolled as a as an art history major. I um this may seem I don't know what I'm not sure if it would be even be possible nowadays, but I was I had what's called sophomore standing. So I entered Yale having already done a year's work in high school. Okay. I was did so many AP tests starting freshman year in high school wow. that I did all like physics and calculus and they could not French keep your brain history. busy enough yeah. like you I, I was already like through. a school kid yeah so I, I came in with sophomore standing so I, I did I did feel like a, a freshman but I also felt like what am I going to do next summer right like, what, I want to be in a play so starting in around October I started looking at backstage for summer theaters. Right. And I thought George M. sounded fun because Bernadette did it. Yeah. I wanted to. So I saw a production at Rhode Island Theater by the Sea. And I thought that sounded fun, theater by the Sea. And that sounds so pretty. Yes. Let's do it. You know, I've never seen Rhode Island. So I don't make decisions. I'm not the most shrewd careerist. I should have been like, let's go to LA. Let's Mm -hmm. Let's get famous. Rhode Island. I'm like, let's do George M. by the Sea. Um, So. I got the back, you know, I got the audition and then I got called back. So I had to drive back and forth. I had been um, Craig and Lucinda's babysitter on As the World Turns when I was in high school. So I had bought myself a Honda. How did you get that job on the soap? That job. Yeah. Do you have an agent Uh, as a kid or you? I was with Abrams and I had a manager. Before that, Fox Albert Kids and Company. You could look that up. Adrian Albert and somebody Fox. She's going to kill me because. And I think do the Fox you get your friend, you friend. get yourself to New York and you get some pictures done? Do you and your parents sit down and talk about it? No, no, in the living room. So she Angela was really. Took my it's the most Angela, thing. but she was really supportive. Yes, she loved it. Are you kidding me? There was no like you're finishing school and if you want to do this, circle back when you're a grown up. Like she mm-hmm. was happy to. If Clearly, I had straight A's, you yes. were. You had straight AP A's. But I did that partially because it was a great bargaining tool. Mm-hmm. If I want to get on the Long Island Railroad starting in eighth grade every day and come back with the commuters to Manhasset, this is a world full of of investment bankers. This is a this is a town where on nine eleven there was no there was there was no car had moved when when nine eleven happened. My mother said you learned about Manhasset. Mm-hmm. Manhasset was the World Trade Center mm-hmm. group. It was a commuter town. So I used to go, I used to get off my bus, my school bus. I told my driver that I could get off at the station. I just told him. I said, I'm going to the city. My parents said it's okay. So I would hop off early so I could get on the quick train like a, you know, 340, yeah, and then get into Manhattan. And I could be in a 430 dance class. And I could do it all the way till 7. Wow. Right? Maybe 7, 7. Yes. If I could get on that 720, 
I'd be home around 8, but always the 820 train. And are you doing homework on the train? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or practicing tap steps or at the same time. Yes. Doing homework and tap dancing surrounded by men who are going home from the bank. And and they looked at me like, is that Dr. Erico's daughter? Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. That family is insane. Yeah. My parents didn't pick me up at the station. This I st- I have to take this up with my mother yes. because I always forget as the mother when of I three. tell the story I always forget to argue to bring it up to her. Yeah, I would walk home in the dark from the train station, and the commuting men used to drive slowly next to me and say, "Do you want to ride home?" No, no, they weren't doing anything weird. Right. Do you want to ride home, Melissa? Like people knew who I was. Right. And I would sometimes say yes, but mostly say no because I had ingrained in myself. I was only thirteen and fourteen. Right. You know, in Manhattan, you always no. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. How long was that walk? Not that long. Um, 10, 15 minutes. I mean, long enough that they would offer me a lift. It was yeah. not exactly. And sometimes the weather yards. was not on yeah. your side, it was right? A walk. Mm-hmm. And then my mother would have dinner in the oven with a tin foil over it. And I would eat and stay up really late. And I don't even remember talking to them much. Right. Um, and I would do my homework until forever. You want another weird little known fact? <laughs> People are going to hate me and say, she's really nuts. Um, I used to. <laughs> Okay, I shouldn't have told you this one already. <laughs> I loved to study to candlelight. Mm. And I, I have a, my eyes are diminishing a bit. I think that's from that. But I used to literally like sometimes just like light candles everywhere. And like I would study And someday I shall play Fosca. Isn't it crazy? You're yes, like exactly. But I, was, I romanticized studying as well. I enjoyed, I enjoyed I love hard it. work and was reading. What a special you know. young kid you okay. were, my you know, God. I did a radio show recently with Jenny Hutt. She has a show on Sirius. And she told, my, I brought Angela to it because Angela hadn't seen her since. She's, we all went to kindergarten together all the way through like fifth grade. And Jenny now, Jenny Koppelman, now Jenny Hutt, she described all this. She said, there was nobody growing up like you. You were, you're writing all your homework in multicolored pens. And your books were so pretty and interesting. We all would steal your notes or we would beg you for your notes because you loved working and studying. How great so that Jenny you got to hear saying, that. She said, you're like an MGM movie yes. when we were growing up. So I don't mean to. Wow, but it's true. Her recollection, you know, someone in your seat just yes. the other day said to me, you were like a movie. It's so you know? wild. And I bless my mother for that because she protected, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the pretty things, you know, in life and yeah. for me and wanted things to be pretty and, and exciting. Um, so you are so. married to someone that also grew up in your town? Yes. I met Patrick when I was in kindergarten. My parents were good friends with the McEnroes, and they were all people who were, you know, bootstraps types, you know, the Italian-American uh, Ericos and the Irish McEnroes. And the McEnroes really had to... You know, they didn't have any money. Mr. McEnroe went to Queens College and, built, you know, built himself up as a lawyer, but he was a really scrappy guy. Sadly, they both uh, passed away recently, but I loved my in-laws. And, um, and so the tennis that both those boys yeah, were playing. There's the famous John McEnroe. Right. There's Mark McEnroe in the middle, and then there's Patrick. They all grew up right in Douglas and Queens, right near Manhasset, and they could choose between sailing or tennis. And my parents were great friends with the with uh, with Kay with their, and John, right. and we have photographs of my parents flipping hamburgers at the at the lower school, you know, fall fair together. Wonderful pictures of them, w- much younger than I am now, but the age I was when I met wild? my husband. Yeah, That's so wild. That's also Patrick very romantic. Younger, I was twenty five when I met Patrick. We got married a year and a half later. Right. 
And um, so you would so know you had gone to the same. You weren't we like together. lifelong friends in no, that way. There was o- almost fifteen years that we didn't see each other because he went to to um, high school in Trinity mm-hmm. in Manhattan. His parents moved into New York when John became. One of the great tennis players, but that of must the world. have been on your radar. Like when you grow up in a town oh, and yeah. someone from your town becomes world famous in yes. whatever they're doing. Yes. So that must have been like, oh, yeah. that's John, John McEnroe, and then I'd see Patrick McEnroe on TV, and I used to say to people, oh, I grew up with them. I know Patrick. He's my he he, he, he my brother is 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 Michael Patrick Erico in, from his confirmation name because they were best friends, and he took Patrick's name. And we have pictures of our at our wedding. We showed all these pictures of us as children together. That is so incredible. Yeah, that is so I grew incredible. Up with my husband, so it's not a celebrity relationship at all. It's a Long Island right. group of people who just you know what his hobby became his profession. My passion became my profession, and we both took care of our bodies. We met at twenty five, and Patrick took care of himself. Mm-hmm. We used to go running together and exercise and. Eat, um, you know, egg whites. You're making me remember why I felt with my husband. Thanks it was for, the I'm egg whites. We all need. We all need a little <laughs> reminder. Wonder what the heck yes. was all about? Long it relationships <laughs> deserve little rekindling. That's why I bring yeah. the matches for all my guests for rekindling. Yes. So, so he's a. You know, how did you remit? So how did you remeet? We remet because Patrick hurt his shoulder. Um, and he couldn't play Wimbledon, and his mother had been following me on Broadway, and she saw me in My Fair Lady. And she said, you know, that girl um, from nursery school, she went to Yale, and she's always in the New York Times, and she was following. She was a bit of a society yeah. woman, and she loved to think that I had done so well. And she, I was 25, and he was 29, and she said, you should look him her up. And he had had shoulder surgery. So he looked me up, and I wasn't listed. And this is before you can... I don't know how you could find people's numbers now. Anyway, right. but he not four one one was it four one one that we yeah find? yeah my brother was listed okay so he called Mike Mike had a it's nine one one no nine one one and you're nervous officer <laughs> I need I need Melissa Erico phone yeah. Up. It's not one. So no, he called four one one. So he called Mike, and this is before we used to tweet and say things yes. about where we're going to be. My brother had an answering machine, and he was a singer songwriter. And on his answering machine, he had listed his gigs. Smart. So Patrick clocked New Music Cafe Thursday at whatever. I used to after all my shows, any Broadway show I was in, I always supported my rock and roll brother. That's how, by the way, I became friends with Greg Naughton, Sherry Renee Scott. Adam Pascal, Kurt Deutsch, a whole rock scene from our Tommy yep. generation. I was kind of Mike's cool. Mike was cool. My singer-songwriter brother. And was he and hanging and playing and making music with those people? They were going checking him out. Okay. And so they were they were admiring of him. And there was a kind of world of rock and singer-songwriters in New York that Broadway was just starting to crisscross. Yes. Des Mackinoff was just here, and we were talking about the, the kind of beginning well, of know. that. Yeah, he directed Tommy, as it were. I sure did. But yes, but definitely. I lived it in my life. My brother was a rocker. And so okay. I was doing My Fair Lady, but running down to rock clubs. And I had a whole other life as Mike's sister with the fake eyelashes and stuff. But I would tear it down and put on a jean jacket, and I lived in the village, and... Um, and there was so Patrick. My whole life as a rock sister, yes. you know. And Pat came down. Were you dating like other actors? Did you date Max Mayer? 
the, from 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 New from, York State. From, no, I didn't. No, not at all. I, I want to reveal your exes since I revealed mine. My, I know. I thought this might come up. My big <laughs> ex has recently passed away, but but he was the director of My Fair Lady. Okay. And I was fresh out of Yale. Um, by the way, did we? I never finished the story. No, the Les Mis story. Well, well, and how you. I left school. Up, yeah, I mean, just I'll just I'll just double circle back, back and then I'll we'll come back. back to, uh, that, um, make a left and then make a right and then make I another took my left. Little Honda from my from my soap opera. I took my little Honda to um, to uh, to Manhattan. I auditioned for George M. and Richard J. Alexander, who was running the whole enterprise of Les Mis. It, this is when Les Mis was the hot thing. I mean, Judy Kuhn, Very few people had played these parts. Yeah, and. Richard J. Alexander saw my curly hair in the tap shoes auditioning and waiting between call for the callbacks to George M. He saw me and he was auditioning Les Mis at 1515 Broadway, mm-hmm. which used to be this mecca for auditioning yes. for everything. You could audition for Alvin Ailey. You could audition for Starlight Express. You could the whole. And it was filled with agents and all. Ev- it was It was, it was an the entertainment it building. Was the, it, it was, was the internet. Yeah, it was the internet yes. in, a, in architectural yes, terms. Yes, in a beautiful golden building, actually. Yes. Yes, yes with, a, with an escalator that elevated you to it as you entered. But it was the kind of high tech internet of the arts you know so i was in that Funny, building yeah. and um richard uh saw me in the hall and he came into the callbacks and asked the people from rhode island if he could see me after and they have often told the story that they knew i was never going to be in georgia by the sea by the yeah. sea so i took the tap shoes off put on a skirt i went in and i auditioned cold for les mis i didn't have an appointment were you and familiar sang, with it like the I rest was, of us yeah i was i knew the song in my life and i pretended i didn't know it i have to admit oh you I, want I, me to do it cold oh, i'll do my best i'll try to learn it how does it go? how does it go in my mm. life. okay, okay. In oh that's life. pretty yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'll never forget barbara walsh she was my understudy in les mis and she Forgot the words, and I was in the audience. They pull you out after every five hundred shows. You have to watch the show because they know you're going cuckoo. Yeah. And I watched Barbara, and she went up, and she went in my in my life, 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 in my life. And I'm watching her, and I'm like, this can't go on. And she goes, in my life, in my life, in my life. And you get in the face. She kept going. She rolled her eyes at that point. She's like, I'm really now, now I'm just gone. So I got the giggles. We were roommates even on the road. So. Anyway, it was such fun. So I did get the part, but they asked me on the spot, can you start in 10 days? And I was like, I'm at Yale. Mm. I'm in the beginning of freshman year at Yale, and I'm in a play. I said, just ha- I had to finish the play, and it was that timed out okay, actually. Um, I don't think it was exact, but it worked out pretty well, and I dropped They said out. yes. They did say yes. Yeah. I did finish Peter Foley's performance, yep. and I sprained my ankle, I remember. I had to ask the freshman football team. To, my parents didn't come to help me pack my car, my Honda. I got the freshman football team, this is how crazy, to fill my car with my stuff. I, as you limp. As, as you limp around. from dorm to car. And I literally went with a little ankle brace and started in the auditorium theater in Chicago. And like a couple of days later, no one told me that you have to, you know, you had to rent my own apartment. The company manager told me what to do. I got a bed, but I didn't ask for the for the frame. Because when you check all the things you need. Right. You, you didn't know. You I had didn't a mattress know. on the floor for yeah. some time. Yeah. I had a phone on the floor. I did the minimal. I wanted to save money. I was so excited to make money. Yes. So I live really simple. I kept the mattress on the floor for a good period of time. And I kept the phone on the floor. And I saved everything. And I made some good money, you know, for a young person. And um, 
every four months I was putting the you know, a chunk away that was a, a, a chunk I had decided was the chunk. And you're traveling. Traveling. You're seeing America. Yeah, working with amazing actors, you know. and Singing Craig those songs. And, yes. Oh, yeah. So that's a pretty exciting it beginning. It was great. It was amazing. And then I, I was asked if I wanted to do um, Phantom of the Opera. And I, my, my parents were like, I really think you should go back to school. So I went back. Using my sophomore standing, I was able to then go and graduate with my class. Right. Yeah. Was that like a struggle to say no to that? Or did you kind of mm. go, you know what? I think they're they're right. I don't like high, high, high singing. Mm-hmm. So part of me psychologically was okay with it. Yeah. yeah. I do like Phantom, but I'm not much of a spectacle type singer. And I think the the Victor Hugo thing really worked for me. Yes. I loved it. Yes. I loved the, the, the whole environment of it. I loved the store. I loved the book. In fact, I read the book. Um, and loved it. So I don't think Phantom of the Opera was was necessary. But yeah. I was excited by it, but I wasn't a spectacle. But it must have been magnet. like, what a great um, affirmation. Oh, sure. They really Cameron did Macintosh like you. And, yeah. Yes. Oh, and it course. was like, it's Richard happening. And, yeah, it was such an honor. It was such an honor. Um, so when you finished school, um, was there ever a moment between New York or L.A.? Or were you always like, I'm going to New York. I'm going to start my career in the theater. I was New York. Mm-hmm. I was such a New Yorker. You know, I met Ted Mann from the Circle in the Square, and he had a workshop of Anna Karenina. And again, the literary side of that appealed to me. I always just went with what was interesting. I wasn't thinking about my career. Yeah. I'm sure I, you can hit me about it. But I, you know, I never. Hate, hate you or hit, hit you? Hit me. You can hit me. Hate <laughs> I'm going to hit no, you. You can hit me. No, I just didn't, you know, I had so much good fortune, but I didn't scheme on it you know mm-hmm. it just wasn't me so did you i just are you am, were you ambitious to to be in things that interest me yeah like so ambitious yeah i wanted to be a part of everything i wanted to be a part of these families and when a story and a family was coming together there's nothing i wouldn't give for it mm-hmm. i would work tirelessly and i loved working with gabriel barr and and ann crumb who just passed away and um John Cunningham and Pat Birch was our choreographer. They were really quality people. Yeah. And so I I probably knew Anna Karenina, the musical, had some flaws, you know, right. or maybe was But it was Anna Karenina. But I mean, come on. It yeah. was like I didn't I didn't um I didn't have my I didn't put my nose up at, at You know, we talked you know. about Michelle Lorraine. I mean, there have been so many so from the Cameron Macintoshes to Richard J. Alexander who oh, who has continued to be, you know a great if director. you're Barbara Streisand or Kristen Chenoweth or all the people yeah, who you go yeah, see yeah. in concert, he, he has remained a, a, a real And he directs me too. Yes. Yeah, he's so a, I'm yeah, saying he, the company you've kept. The, um so and he's iconic. He's even Bette Midler. He's worked with everybody. And you talk, you know, you know we began with talking he says he's about. He's the diva whisperer. He is the diva whisperer, <laughs> 100%. But also, there's another kind of um, iconic person who, who you have been known to be maybe of our generation, um, the best translator or, or channel for his work, which is Sondheim. Um, mm-hmm. You have a, an, an album of his, and you did play Fosca. Actually, I played Clara. Um, I'm sorry, in, in Clara. Fashion. Yeah, Clara. I, the, first, um, the first one I did was Sunday in the Park with George. So if you jump back to the, was he involved in that production? Absolutely. So can you Raul. talk to us about that experience? Yeah, I know we're jumping around, but there's no, no, no way we can cover no, in chronological yeah, order. No. Yeah, we. I mean, you jump. You know, so so all that all that at, at, you know, I did Les Mis and so on. I did go back to Yale and stuff, and I just kept working my Broadway stuff. And um, before I had, you know. Um, before I had uh, children, children, um, I was living in L.A. and that um, 
what really brought me to Sondheim was Michelle Legrand insofar as I was living in LA and there was a whole the natural progression in the late 90s or whatever was when you had some success on Broadway I've had some success I've had big parts like High Society and so on um uh TV wants uh, you. TV calls. Yeah. TV calls. And so, and it seems like the thing to give a try, even if you didn't win the Tony, you didn't have a hit. You know, I've had so uh, many kind of, kind of great experiences, but the shows weren't big hits. And I had to uh, manage, you know, um, my, if you can tell, I was a very optimistic person and had all these ideas about this beautiful life where I feel my parents could have been more helpful was to be more practical, actually, as much as I've built up this whole idea of Melissa and her circus life by candlelight. Um, it would have been nice if my mother and father had also explained this is just a job. You're going to have good days. You're going to have a bad right. day. And um, it's a profession. And maybe showed me the more uh, down-to-earth, nuts-and-bolts sides of things. But um, I was very upset when shows didn't work. And I took it way too mm -hmm. much to heart. I would love to to other people to learn flexibility to learn to roll with failure and not take it personally and keep your your light inside alive don't be don't get so idealistic that you fall so far and i think i definitely made those mistakes um where you really would feel badly. like like what like it was Depressed. your fault that it didn't go Just the way it should have just too much falls to pieces when everything falls, when mm. things don't work out. It's mm -hmm. just over, it's over, it's over exaggerating the suffering, you know, like so much is good, you know, and there's, I was seeing the world in black and white and I didn't see all the different shades of gray. And um, so I regret that. And I've become so different as a person. And that is the biggest evolution that I've had, which is to see all the nuances mm -hmm. in life. So I was in L.A., very sad about um, high society mostly, but excited to try life in L.A. did some movies, and, and I did seven television pilots. I worked with Spike Lee, Larry Charles, Ed Burns, all the top, so many, Tom Fontana, huge names, Kelsey Grammer, so many big and show after show parts, after show. Yeah. You know, playing like big parts. The female the, lead the in the these pilots. The female lead or one of the female leads in yeah. the pilot that didn't go. And are you auditioning for these things, or you do oh, have a development yes. deal, or oh, you? No, no, no. But you're testing and yes. getting them. Yes, I was always willing to get in the car and go and audition and play with material. And Did you get nervous? Be relaxed. Yeah, yeah, I would be nervous sometimes. Other times, I thought it was fun, you know, because mm -hmm. I didn't have the same investment I had with theater. Broadway would really matter. Television seemed like as fun, you know, and like not so much. To prove, you know, like that you could sing it and dance it, you had to kind of have the right essence. And so, really, there's not that much you can control. Yeah. You come in. Got it, you know. With the material. Yeah. yeah. I even wrote about that. You know, I've been writing in the New York Times and I wrote that piece about self taping. And I, I interviewed people from all over the business. And a lot of people said auditions really just comes down to 90% just the essence of the person, the alchemy between what's on the page and just who the heck you are. Right. I think I sensed that more in L.A. Yeah. I was a little lighthearted about getting work, and I just didn't feel too – I wasn't too stressed. Which is stressed. also an attractive quality in a performer. Someone not coming in stressed Trying is also hard. like, yeah. yeah. So if a pilot didn't go, did you have the same devastated feeling as a show? No. No. There was all. no investment Sorry. in that way. Not so much. Not so much. Because I, I was kind of in those trailers thinking, you know, I sing. Yeah. I was always feeling there was music was missing. And I always mm -hmm. felt like I'm, I spent you know, months and months as Angelina Jolie's best friend and life or something like it. It took four or five months to film that movie. And I was always hanging out with her. 
and she really liked me. I'm not sure. Even I've seen her since, and she's really nice to me. I don't know if she fully knew I was a singer. Yeah. Like, and it's hard to be, like, somebody's best friend or somebody's wife or the mayor's wife or the architectural digest girl who's a funny nerdy character on this like friends spinoff or something but nobody knows you're a singer yeah i always found that to be like a little awkward so i'd run off to santa monica to alan pasqua's house who's a jazz pianist and i would make demos and sing on the side for you yeah so one day my hollywood manager said to me um there's this fax that's come from new york there's an audition in new york for a musical coming over from Paris, and it's called Le Pas Muraille or something in Paris. I couldn't even read it. And it was directed by James Lapine, and they want you to audition for it. And I looked at the paper. It said it's uh, comp- music composed by Michelle Legrand. Right. And I went, Michelle Legrand? And I'm standing in this Hollywood office. I said, Michelle Legrand wrote a musical. And she turns to me and she goes, I know, I know, I love her. Right. And I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. So I did fly back to New York, and I auditioned for James Lapine, Michelle Legrand, got the leading part in that, which was literally I could fall on my knees with gratitude because the idea that I would meet him right. and work for him, it was the most incredible thing. Sondheim came to that okay. workshop. Then I got Sunday in the Park with George. So these were very lucky things. Yeah. And Proving for me. The because Lapine and Sondheim are friends and collaborators. collaborators. He, he just came to see it. He wasn't working on it. No, he wasn't Got working it. on it at all. He's just, anything James is up to, James He's going to come see. His, yeah. yeah. And I know that Sondheim doesn't care much for Michelle Legrand's music. Um, and there is a little vibe there. But that's sort of amusing at this point because they're two titans to whom I've dedicated myself. Yeah. But they're very different men. But um, anyhow, so Sondheim was there. And I, I then got – I did get Sunday in the Park with George – with that audition. Mm-hmm. It was a meeting. I was brought in. Everyone had heard and seen me sing. But that was the only time, maybe, where I really felt my life was changing. Yeah. To get cast in something like that. Yeah. And my father called me when I was cast in Sunday in the Park with George. He goes, Melissa, I know you're smart. I know you think you're so good. Or I know you're, you're good. You're not that good. And I literally remember him saying, but you're not that good. What does that mean? And, well, Sondheim. My father studied it and knew it was harder music than I had ever really tackled mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. I was saying to you, everything came easy. Yeah. I was a sponge and my voice and my nature and everything always it was all working. Musical. It all worked. Yeah. My father, for the first time in my career, raised a red flag. Watch out. You're about to step in the hardest, you know, sport in your profession. Right. It's the sport of Sondheim. And I remember my dad is never like that, nor was he particularly involved in my career. But he was not scared for me, but he was – I remember the phone call. I remember where I was standing, the window I was looking out of because I thought, oh. Was your said, leg – you better get started Was your now. leg above no, your head? No, my leg was above my head. Not at all. My legs were on the ground. I'd already been through some there of were my no depression and LA. Right. And, no, no. You know, life it was settles real. you. Yeah. Life settles you. Yeah. And – um. No, my, my, my feet were on the ground, and I just um, – I heard my dad, and I started studying it. And I called Paul Ford, who was the rehearsal pianist of the original production. Yeah. And Paul Ford taught me the show in his apartment. And that was the smartest thing I could have done because he taught me why this pause, why this thing, how it how a little cesure shows insecurity in a character. You know, hello, George. What did you do? You just any of the ways that the, the percussiveness of his um, of his writing shows that she's pestering George or, you know, I was learning to listen to the music emotionally 
but with the I mean, everything has a psychological purpose in Sondheim. Every no, every comma. I've talked about commas in his work. Marry me a little, or any any kind of that time. Whenever there's a comma, it's a profound comma. We had a good thing going, going, gone. Period. There's always something wild happening during that comma. Yeah. Um, the world changes. So he is the poet of contradiction, and the contradictions are built into every sentence. And so I learned so much from Paul, but I've learned over the years, you know, that a lot about his work. So I did Sunday in the Park with George. He did come to rehearsals. And um, Are there things that he said that you remember as much as your father's uh, comment before you began <laughs> that have stuck with you from the, uh, your first meeting of him? I remember the pressure of his gaze. He really pays attention. Yeah. I remember the intensity of him watching. The un- Was that unnerving or yes. exciting? Uh. I was a little naive. Now it would make me nerve. Well, now it would make me. I'm not a little less nervous now. There was a period of terror, and then it was. Now I know him a little better, and he mm-hmm. kind of knows how much I respect him. Mm-hmm. I'm like a good daughter now. Like a, I'm like a devotee. I want to hear. He now gives me anecdotes because he wants me to remember them, yeah. hear them. Yeah. So it's very. Um, I've devoted myself to him, and uh, as many people have, but I. I think now a little less afraid but no at the early the, the Sunday in the park with George I was excited that he was there and I wanted to give him an idea on the first day which was that me and Raul thought that the whole color and light sequence we were young would be better if I was in a bathtub in bubbles like an impressionist painting and that he was painting and she couldn't get his attention so color and light was all more sexual like she's mm. she's using her she's nude she's in the tub which is so impressionist you know it's all the yeah. typical iconography of impressionist painting of the bather and um did you know raul before no, but we were like this in yeah. cuban italian we were, we're like in. fire yes fire and we proposed that um it's that we, he just have to change a few words so instead of putting on makeup i was using soap and scent to make myself, instead of more rouge, to make myself red for him and rosy, it was more scent. And I would just rub scent and I was on the tub. And so at the opera house at the Kennedy Center, I was nude in a tub with bubbles and Sondheim did give us new lyrics. And it was amazing because I risked elect- getting electrocuted. I mean, because it is water. And I yeah, had a, and mics. I had a mic pack in my We wig. do that for Sondheim. Yeah. We risk yeah. being electrocuted. But how about really that he fun. said yes? He, he he was like okay. He was he did it. I'm not sure what he was thinking. There was he was quiet then. I think he really liked Raul mm-hmm. and really related to Raul. And I think with me, he just gave me that support. And I think he liked me. But I think I think he was different with women, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I had to earn it and over many years. You know, I've, I'm never gonna say like, oh, me and Sand, I'm you. Know, but I think over time, I've been able to just to show my dedication and um and there's a warmth there uh but but i think maybe he was more chummy with with raul i think really you sit and analyze and talk raul and him are very similar too um you was know, that our hard? business is, is male it's yeah. a different generation i would i wouldn't as a young woman or woman you know ever like sit down and like gab with a famous male composer who's older but a man would right you know? i hate to say it like that but maybe so I so for raul as far as it was it was I mean, equally heady to be in conversation with him, but he felt welcome. Do it, mm-hmm. yeah. I would be more shy, you know, a little bit more just the artist at work in devotion, and that was the part I played. Right. When I did Passion, um, 
I had my emotions on the line much more than I had ever in my life. That and part. Think, yeah. And he he saw it, and he gave me a lot of emotional support. He he did say a lot of nice things. He was pleased with what I did. Mm-hmm. But one of the things he um, he talked to me about was um, was uh, the importance of singing apostrophes. He said when there's an apostrophe, he said you never say if you're singing wouldn't, you have to sing wouldn't. You have to the has to you have to sing the the the, the apostrophe. You can't say wouldn't. He hates when anybody puts a vowel sound between. So we would get on these huge conversations about um, um, sort of the power of singing the apostrophe but not adding a vowel sound. So I said, well, how do you sing the silence? The wouldn't. He says, it's a silence. It goes through your nose. So we would have these crazy things. Then there would be apostrophes all over his score, and I would look at him and point, and he would <laughs> laugh because he'd see my mind yeah. going. I love yeah. detail. And so I was like his daughter, but but a, there was a formality between us. But once he gave me something like the apostrophe, I found apostrophes everywhere. Right. And I make him laugh because right. I would keep looking, and he'd look because he'd see, here's another one Yes. Coming. Wouldn't and don't and this and anytime there was an apostrophe T, I was, oh, there's another one. Yeah, and you so got it. We had fun like that. We had fun over the details of his work, you know, and um, the emotions of his work were, were killer. Um, it's like how you know we would find Hirschfelds in in his yeah. uh, in his pictures, his yeah. daughter's names, Nina. sort of like you would find the Ninas yeah. in the Hirschfeld. It's oh, like I finding, that every Sunday. of course, but yeah. like finding the apostrophe in the Sondheim. Yes, yes, I shared that kind of obsessive, weird love of minutia with him, and I did hurt my voice during Passion. I had bronchitis, and I, I we had an orchestra situation where they were in up in the another room where you didn't see them, and the conductor couldn't see us either so we had to hear each other right at the classic stage so it wasn't like a traditional situation so on top of singing sick not ideal i shouldn't had no understudy so i and you kept barreling through because you're a good soldier and i yeah. had a little bruise i had a little hemorrhage in my vocal cord and it was not a big technical problem but it was so upsetting i had to leave the show and um you know and small injuries Every injury is a big injury when you sing because you can't sing on an injury. You just Can you talk a little bit about when you started blogging, when blogs were new and people didn't even know what blogs yeah, were? Yeah, was. There, people weren't blogging. No. And I, I, um, I heard my voice and um, I was working pretty hard, you know, just total silence. I shut down my voice to get well to try to get back into the production. Yeah. And um, the show was a big hit and people were apparently were turning their tickets. Right, because you weren't there. Back. Yeah. And the it, producers felt it was best that I don't come back if I wasn't going to get well until sort of right around the closing. And it was just they terminated my contract mm-hmm. and said, go and rest and so on. But that was not done together. We just it's not you know, we don't have look, we're passionate people. We're in passion, but we're powerless. We're actors. Right? Yeah. And um, I didn't know that that was a decision they were going to make. And I wept. And my vocal cord hemorrhage came back from crying. That's why my injury lasted so long. Right. I've never actually said this before publicly. Right. So that, that's a little known fact because I've never said it. But what ha- my injury doubled because of cro- my, my heart. I was so heartbroken right. to, to, to be separated from the company and not have it. Like, I just, I, I didn't expect it. And all I, of it. And the stream part yeah, and all of we the, what you wanted. The doctor really thought I could get back for mm-hmm. the very last few performances. That was, 
that was too much, I think, for the producers to wait, and that was stressful, and I do understand that. And in retrospect, of course, there is business and so on, but I took it real hard, and I you took just it personally, crying alone, a weak vein, and so I had to have a KTP laser treat that vocal cord. This is almost ten years ago, right? But, um, it took here's the number. It took fifteen one thousandth of a second to repair. Doctor Zaitels did it. Dr. Zaitels is the man very famously who put Adele back on her feet and her first big injury and some of the biggest singers in the history of the world. You can look them up, whoever's come out. Dr. Zaitels is the, the genius, one of the geniuses behind tricky and important operations. Mm-hmm. He's, invented, he's invented instruments and used lasers in ways that have never been used before. He is, there's been features on him in The New Yorker. He's like Willy Wonka of The Voice. There are very good, many good doctors out there. Dr. Zaitels is one of the leaders right. of the field. He felt very strongly that there is this cloak of shame about it, whereas he's like, I can fix you in 15 one-thousandth of a second merely because a vein broke, you were singing on bronchitis. You cried. You had a strong you, – you, literally, any pressure, the vein was weak. That doesn't matter. It could have been you go back and sing. Right. It's This is now a technical thing. A KTP laser seals it. It's gone. And so it's this not ha- – there's no healing? You're no, not then – Well, you, he wanted me to be quiet for a month. One month. One month. Because of the prior – the amount of time I took to be quiet, then having to do it twice, I didn't open my mouth for 106 days. That's really hard. 106 days where I thought about my grandmother who couldn't sing, my great – Great aunt who was shut down, sang in this only way, performed actually in silent movies, was shut down by men. My own mother, who's a sculptor, who sang kind of through me. I, I digested the ideas hmm. of silence. And I started to blog because I felt like I had put so many eggs in this basket. My whole life was in this basket of the theater. And everything I ever – and I had – I've even forgotten some of my misgivings and shared with you today that I – really wanted to join this circus and it meant a lot i put my whole life into this like anyone else would who has a passion um or some conviction a conversion practically religious you know i wanted to be i loved the theater i saw a chorus line i said like everybody else who saw a chorus line or sees beetlejuice now i want to do that and i was blessed enough to get awfully close to it off many times or it slipped by as well but there's so many successes and chances to have done it but it all felt like it was coming tumbling down. Mm-hmm. And I assessed it in a blog. I shared the medical details, what I'd been learning about laser, how simple it was ultimately going to be. So interesting, really. And I put medical pictures up, and I shared my emotions, my retrospected, my fair lady, my falling in love with the um, director of My Fair Lady. That was about the voice because Eliza discovers who she is through mm-hmm. the uh, production of her Absolutely. refined voice. And through her voice, he creates a woman who has all this um, access now to upper class. Our production was very, very radical. If I wrote about this in the New York Times in another piece on misogyny and so on. But the misogyny of My Fair Lady has been addressed this year in the, in the revival. wonderful Bart Scher production. We had done it in the 90s, but it got changed as we got closer to Broadway because people were, the estates were less comfortable with radical and feminist ideas. Again, very much pre-Me Too. But our production was so interesting, and the director had this idea that not only does Eliza, you know, enter uh, her gender, becomes more feminine, and but she's once she's free, apparently free to, you know, 
be passed as a duchess at the embassy ball, she's really only free to be passed around the marriage market. That she was actually freer before mm-hmm. on the street. Right, with the flower buy, market. Buying yeah. and selling and, and, inter- and interacting with every race and every gender. And being and doing... an independent person. Yes. So the idea of the voice, you know, went into my blog on many, many uh, levels about my, not only my career and my medical, but also uh, experiences, but, but some of the, um, the stories that are part of my life, both my family history and the story of Eliza, the story of Clara and passion. I found that all very interesting because she was so uh, happy, but only behind closed doors. So there was a separation between her, her ability her to... Her presentation f- of self and her... Yeah. Behind the scenes self. Freedom to yeah. be heard, to be yourself, to yeah. be sexual. She wasn't allowed, right? So I worked, I, I wrote this complex blog that was kind of literary, kind of personal, and my agents really didn't like it. They that you were exposing what? Uh, that I was sharing my feelings in public, you know, or that I was letting people in on, like, on a hard time. Mm. It just wasn't cool at that time. Right. And some of the biggest names in the world were writing to me privately that they had had the same thing happen, but they... They had been let go of a show because of vocal problems? Well, or... they had to call it something else. Okay. And it was all about hiding, and they were all very intrigued. But I think my blog was a surprise to a lot of people. Julie Andrews wrote to me differently. She wrote to me to make sure I had the right procedure. Right. She actually based came... Based on her experience. Based on her experience, she mm-hmm. came in. Julie Andrews was, a, was emailing me from Boston when I came out of surgery. Right. I will never forget how generous she was. She wanted to see... She feels her problems began in My Fair Lady. Yeah. So she felt bound to wow, me. Wow, so fascinating. On. So interesting. So my blog had that in it. I even talked about the, the, t- the singers who spoke, were helping me. I was able to say if they inspired me. Like Donna Murphy took my drama desk um, uh, acceptance speech and she was going to say it for me, like people were helping me to be heard. And there are women in the business who really were there for me. So when you Um, left the show, what was, what did the public think happened? What did they announce when you left Passion? That I was sick, just that I was sick. Mm -hmm. And then it went, just sick. Which was, made you feel like worse in a way. Like, no, I'm not sick. I have a specific, what does that mean, sick? I'm sick, I'm injured. Sick to, the thing is that my injury was actually a little bit um, obscured. It wasn't on the anterior or the front of the vocal cord. It was sort of around the back. So we didn't even see where the bruise was until some, so right at the beginning, it wasn't that clear that I had a a small vein break. Right. So it's, you know, vocal injuries are hard to detect. Yeah. The the physical, the anatomy is not easy to see. But at first it was just, she's sick, she's sick, she's sick, right? And then I did come out and say that I was having an operation. Right. And then I blogged the process of it. Right. And really pulled myself together. Weirdly, the blog is what began my writing essays because right after I, after a couple, all the years of getting well, I started doing television again. And I did Do I Hear a Waltz with Mm -hmm. Sondheim, which was another great experience. Did billions, and in billions, I did a sex scene. I had to do a sex scene, and that struck me as funny and weird and full of ironic negotiations about what you'll show and what you yeah. won't show. So my writing skills were already kind of more refined, and the idea of being Eliza Doolittle, who's now doing a sex scene, um, with Austin Pendleton, who had been, who was a great actor, who had been my coach to train me to get my fair lady. He ended up being the guy in bed with me on television. Right, right. This struck me as another essay. And I wrote something is from the blog to the essay I wrote for Christina Cuomo's magazine about nudity. Then the New York Times called me 
And so we've been interested in you in general, your writing and your processing of your life experience as an actress and the way you've been putting it. So I do appreciate the blog, but it, at the time, wasn't... It made me nervous because I wasn't. I, I I could see my agents weren't happy, and my even my parents honestly weren't happy. The public seemed to love it, and I eventually took it down. And I have it. I can mm-hmm. publish it. Mm-hmm. But the blog was a lifesaver, and it taught me a lot about writing, mm-hmm. and it taught me a lot about um, even what I when I was writing recently about self taping. We as actors have periods of our life where we're very powerless, and what are we going? What do you do to take some ownership over your experiences. We are not dogs, you know. We are not like we have to have some uh, uh, we agency. Have to, sometimes, yeah, you know, yeah. It's not easy um, always to be an artist, an actor. So um, writing and writing cabarets and so on has become that for me. You yeah. Know? In the same way, I learned with self taping. We're all learning to sort of self produce and put costumes on and tape and. Um, and and present ourselves, we, we're almost sometimes getting forced to produce ourselves. I mean, you've made some world for yourself as well. It's just so brilliant. But things where you can create for yourself. Yeah. And keeps you going. Well, it's funny because yeah. I'm about to go do a play and it's like, oh, wow, I'm not, oh, I'm going to be a, a company member again, right? Yeah, and it's just, no, me yeah. too. But it's just yeah. so interesting. Like it's, I've been such an independent um person but hasn't it been good for you yeah i love yeah. it it's like for me i the feel very full yeah it I, I spoke to so many people james lapine even said to me on the phone when i was interviewing him for that piece in the Times. yeah he said the actors who come up with things to do between their roles are the ones who last the longest um you have to come back because we've literally scratched the surface of your extraordinary life. But I just oh, have to say the amount of joy that you have brought me selfishly with all of the roles I've been able to see you and all of the the music I've been able to listen to and the way you just share so generously so much of your life with all of us through your writing and performance. Um Thank you for being here today. Little known fact, I adore you. That's my little known (laughs) fact. everyone. New episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday, and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Hey, I am so excited to share some news with you guys. For the last few months, I've been working on another project that I've been calling Little Known Facts 2.0, Stage Network, an incredible new streaming platform which promises to be Netflix for theater lovers, asked me to do Little Known Facts as a filmed series, a talk show, as it were in front of cameras. And I really thought about it for a long time because the thing that's made this podcast so special is that all of my guests have been able to share deep, intimate truths about their lives because we are in this tiny, 
comforting confessional that is the podcast booth. And I really had to think hard, could I still deliver the same kind of intimate, raw, hilarious, and unique interviews if cameras were involved? But I think I figured it out. And I'm so grateful to Stage Network for allowing me to make my dream of sharing incredible friends with you in this whole new way. So I shot six episodes. The first one uh, is with Ben Platt. Other guests include Celia Keenan-Bolger, Zachary Quinto, George Salazar, Nikki M. James, John Slattery, and I cannot tell you how thrilled I am to share them with you. Stage Network really is an amazing place. Not only is it filled with incredible original content, uh, it has licensed so much theater-related content, documentaries and films and all sorts of incredible programming. I feel like I dreamed up a network and someone else created it and here it is. And the fact that I'm involved in even a small way with this incredible, incredible network is just truly an honor. So to that end, uh, to watch all of the content, including Little Known Facts, the series, go to watchstage.com. Enjoy and I hope you like it. Little Known Facts is edited by Nicholas Clark and recorded in New York City.